0: Tonight's lecture is the third event in a series devoted to investigating our conceptions of the American Dream. Please join us on May 3rd for our final program in the series, which will be a special program about Leonard Bernstein's Trouble in Tahiti, presented in partnership with the Boston Lyric Opera. Our esteemed speaker this evening is author, activist, and human rights leader Sarah McBride, author of Tomorrow Will Be Different, Love, Loss, and the Fight for Trans Equality. Her story is one of incredible courage and fortitude, passion and conviction. In April 2012, she made headlines and history with a viral Facebook post in which she came out as a transgender woman while serving as American University's student body president. Shortly thereafter, she went to work in the Obama administration's Office of Public Engagement, where she became a voice for LGBT rights. In 2016, at the age of 26, she was the first transgender person to speak at a national political con- convention where she asked, quote, "'Will we be a nation where there's only one way to love, "'one way to look, one way to live, Or will we be a nation where everyone has the freedom to live openly and equally? Today, Ms. McBride is the National Press Secretary at the Human Rights Campaign, where she works tirelessly to advocate for LGBTQ equality. If the American dream is about the pioneering spirit and unwavering belief in the power that we all have to build a better future, then Sarah McBride's life is indeed a fulfillment of that dream. Please join me in welcoming Sarah McBride to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: Well, good evening everyone. It is so wonderful to be here. Danny, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Thank you all for coming and braving the snow. I know it was a little bit of a trek, so thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit uh, about my own journey in this moment uh, in trans equality, and then I'd love to open it up for questions so that we can have a conversation. As Danny mentioned, my name's Sarah McBride. I'm the National Press Secretary at the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization. I'm 26, seven years old, almost lost track of time. I'm 27 years old. I'm a native of Wilmington, Delaware, a proud graduate of American University, and I'm a transgender woman. It took me 21 years to muster up the courage to say those last two words, transgender woman. Today, they are among my proudest identities, and tonight I can stand before you as the person that I am. But of course, it hasn't always been that way. I remember as a child lying in my bed at night, praying that I would wake up the next day and be myself. I remember wondering whether the heart of this country was big enough to love someone like me, and just wanting my parents to still be proud of me. I think it's difficult for folks who aren't transgender to really wrap their minds around the experience of having a gender identity that differs from your sex assigned at birth for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and queer individuals who are not transgender, it's easy for the straight population, or it's at least easier for the straight population to enter into their lives through their understanding of what it feels like to love and to lust. But the cisgender population, the population that's not transgender, doesn't really have an analogous experience. And so for me, the best way I can describe that feeling of being unseen, that feeling of being in the closet, was a constant feeling of homesickness. An unwavering ache in the pit of my stomach that would only go away when I could be seen and affirmed as myself. And unlike homesickness with geography, which dissipates with time and getting used to your new surroundings, for me, that homesickness only grew with time and distance. But I kept it inside. I told myself that if I could make it worthwhile for other people for me to stay in the closet by making a difference in this world, by making my family proud, that those things would somehow bring me the wholeness and completeness that I sought. I eventually went to American University in Washington, D.C. in 2009 uh, to major in political science. And during my sophomore year at American University, I was elected president of the student body. And it was through that experience, through having the opportunity to finally work on issues that I cared about, including LGBTQ equality, it became clear to me that the things I told myself would bring me happiness and wholeness, that they wouldn't actually bring me that completeness. And in many ways, it would actually make it worse. I remember confiding in a friend uh, in the fall of 2011, that I was struggling with my gender identity. And I asked her to call me by the name that I thought about picking Sarah and female pronouns, and she obliged. And in that little interaction, in seeing that the world wouldn't collapse around me, I knew that I could take the steps that I needed to to live my life more fully. On Christmas Eve, I decided to come out to my parents while sitting in church, watching as our choir sang, Oh Holy Night, and looking up at the stained glass mirror w- windows and just knowing that I could not spend one more day not actually experiencing that beauty. Because when I was in the closet, my entire existence became about my gender identity. I thought about it every single waking hour of every single day. And so I literally didn't wait one more day. I came out to my family on Christmas Day in 2011. I- I had opened a present, a button-up shirt and a tie, which I had asked for, for Christmas, and it was such a stark contrast between where I was and where I wanted to be, between who I knew I was and who everyone thought I was, between my dreams and my identity. Up until that point, it seemed to me that my dreams and my identity were mutually exclusive. I had always loved government, I had always loved advocacy, I had always loved politics, and it seemed to me, reading the history books growing up, that there was no one quite like me who had ever made it very far in those history books. But the pain had become too much, and I came out to my parents. I knew in coming out to my parents that they would really struggle with the news. But I also knew that I was going to be one of the lucky ones, because I never feared that my parents would reject me. I never feared that my parents wouldn't, at the end, support me. My mom confessed that she felt like I was dying. And it took my brother, who was a radiation oncologist, to tell my mom, he said, Mom, I see children dying every single day. Your child is not dying. They aren't going anywhere. And I told my mom, you're keeping your child and gaining a daughter. But for my parents, the experience of me coming out did feel like a loss because one, I was going to look different. Two, they were going to call me a different name, but three, so much of their hopes and dreams for me growing up in that moment washed away. They feared rejection in every sense of the word. But I knew that this was the step that I needed to take. I sat with my parents for about seven days and went through every single question. The first several questions were really all about, am I sure? And I told them that I was as sure of this as I am, that I love them. My father, who's a progressive person, he wondered, if gender is a social construct, then how can you have a deeply held sense of something that's a social construct? And I said to my dad that, for me, gender is a lot like language. Language is a social construct. But the words that we've created, the words that we have established, Express very real, very deep feelings. Happiness, the word itself, is a social construct, but it expresses a very real emotion. And just like there are almost an infinite number of ways to express happiness through words and nonverbals, there's an infinite number of ways to express a deeply held sense of your gender identity. But it was clear that it was going to take my parents' time. But fortunately, they were ready to stand with me. And as I came out to more and more friends and family on the last day of my term as president of the student body at American University, I came out to the broader student body in an op-ed in the AU student newspaper. Now, I was really scared about the reaction from the campus community. But all I got was support. One student said that uh, the response to my coming out felt like we had won a sports championship, and I don't know how they would know that because AU doesn't win sports championships, but (laughs) it was just an overwhelming outpouring of love and, and acceptance, and it wasn't about me. It was about the fact that on that night that I came out, American University as a campus was preparing to send a message to the country which is that we may still be learning about what it means to be transgender. We may not really be able to wrap our minds around this, but this is how you respond, with love, with kindness, and with support. But looking around American University's campus and obviously looking around the country, it was clear to me that as difficult as it was for me to come out, I was still relatively lucky compared to the experience of the vast majority of transgender people. A statistic that I knew far too well growing up reading about transgender identities online and one that my father had discovered when I first came out was a statistic in a report called Injustice at Every Turn, which reported that 41% of transgender respondents had attempted suicide at some point in their life. 41%. But what I knew and what my father knew was that that number dropped dramatically when the transgender person was accepted by their family and dropped even further when they were accepted by their community. And so stepping into the world, my parents said that they understood that they needed to set a standard for everyone else to meet. That while they were still gonna struggle with this, externally, publicly, they needed to accept me to set that standard and that rejection would provide an excuse for other people. And so with my parents joining me, I decided that I wanted to make sure that the privileges that I have, of a safe and supportive learning environment, of a supportive family, of economic opportunity, that those would no longer be privileges, but rather a right and a guarantee given to everyone, no matter their gender identity. At the time, my home state of Delaware was one of a majority of states that still lacked clear and explicit protections from discrimination based on gender identity in employment, in housing, and in public spaces. And we decided as a family that we would go down and lobby our legislature to adopt a bill called the Gender Identity Non-Discrimination Act of 2013. And I went down every single day with my mom and I watched these legislators relate to my mother while I tried to talk to them about statistics and facts. And I realized that at the end of the day, my job as a transgender person talking to these legislators, it wasn't to create the most cogent case. It was to create the most compelling case. I recognized that I needed to be vulnerable in front of those legislators. I needed to express my hopes and my dreams and my fears. Because vulnerability transcends ideology, it transcends geography, it transcends race and gender and religion. And when we allow people to see our vulnerability, when we allow people to see us in those fears and in those hopes, we allow people to see us in our full humanity. So day in and day out, I walked the halls of our state legislature and I talked to various members of that state legislature. and. Over the course of several months, by making our stories more personal, by demonstrating that behind this national conversation on transgender rights are real people who hurt when we're mocked, who hurt when we're discriminated against, and who just want to be treated with dignity and fairness, we were able to convince enough legislature, legislators to adopt the Gender Identity Non-Discrimination Act in Delaware. And that law came just five weeks after the state also adopted marriage equality, making Delaware the only state in the history of the country to adopt both marriage equality and transgender rights in the exact same year. And it passed not because of money, not because of political benefits. It passed because these legislators finally understood that transgender people hope and fear, dream and cry, laugh and love, just like everyone else. for me, and one of the topics of my book, is about my relationship with an incredible transgender man named Andy Cry. I come to this work as an advocate, not just as someone who is transgender, but also as someone who's loved someone who's transgender. I met Andy at a White House Pride reception in 2013 and quickly fell in love with him. I'd admired his extraordinary advocacy, his humor, his intelligence, and his unparalleled kindness. Shortly after we started dating, Andy was diagnosed with cancer. And after going through radiation, chemo, and surgery, Andy received the news that every single patient fears. His cancer was back, it had spread, and for him, it was terminal. When we found out that Andy didn't have much time left, my brother, the same brother who told my mother that her child wasn't dying, he said to me, this is gonna be incredibly difficult, but look around you and take stock in the acts of amazing grace that you will see every single day during this journey. And the reality was, every single day, I was fortunate enough to see amazing grace around us. Miracles in our friends joining together to organize a wedding on the rooftop of our building within five days. The miracle of Andy surviving long enough to make it to the rooftop when, by all accounts, he probably should have passed a couple days before. We married uh, on the rooftop of our building in August of 2014, and then four days after we married, Andy passed away. Knowing and loving Andy left me profoundly changed. Andy taught me how to love and be loved. He taught me how to live the values I fight for at work in my own life. But more than anything else, my relationship with Andy underscored for me that change cannot come fast enough, that every single day matters when it comes to building a world where every person can live their life to the fullest. After Andy passed and I went through the different stages of grief, I finally landed on anger. Now, I've never really been an angry person. Petty anger seems like such a waste of time to me, but petty anger isn't the only kind of anger. There's also righteous anger. I was angry not at the cluster of cells. There was no one to blame there. I was angry not at the luck. There was no one to blame there. I was angry that Andy had spent so much of his life in the closet. He had the courage to come out at a relatively young age. He was supposed to have three quarters of his life as his authentic self. But because of circumstances outside of his control, he had less than a quarter. And some people have even less time than that. I was angry at society for the fact that hate had kept Andy inside of himself for far too long. I was angry at society that far too many people wake up in the morning every single day and instead of siding with love and inclusion, decide to hate and to build barriers in the way of other people. I was angry that others had taken that time and truth away from him. Hope can always be found. Ideas are endless. Inspiration can always be seen, but time is the one resource none of us can afford to waste. Dr. King called it the fierce urgency of now. And so for me, I've taken that lesson with me. I've taken it with me in my advocacy. And what I want to do more than anything else is I want to make sure that people understand that when you ask anyone, when you ask any marginalized person, whether they're LGBTQ, whether they're black, whether they're Muslim, whether they're a cisgender woman, no matter who they are, when you ask a person to let a slow conversation take place before you grant them the equal protection of the laws or equal treatment by society, you are asking that one person to watch their life pass by without the dignity and respect that every human deserves. And that is far too much to ask of anyone. This is a critical moment in the fight for transgender equality. Over the last decade, we have witnessed historic progress When I came out six years ago, the percentage of Americans who said they knew someone who was transgender was in the single digits. Today, that number is between 30 and 40%. And we know when you know someone who's transgender, when you know someone who's LGBTQ, it changes the way you look at the issue. You can no longer look at that issue as an abstraction. You can no longer dismiss it as a luxury issue or as a social issue. You understand that when it comes to equality, it is a matter of life and death. We've seen incredible progress in social acceptance. We've seen incredible progress in more states and cities adopting inclusive laws that protect transgender people and LGBTQ people more broadly from discrimination throughout daily life. Over the eight years of the Obama administration, we witnessed in Barack Obama and Joe Biden unparalleled allies in our fight for transgender equality. They expanded non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people in federal contracts, the single largest expansion in workplace protections for LGBTQ people in our history. Barack Obama lifted a ban on, on transgender people serving openly in our military. And a reflection of some of the work that Andy did when he was alive, they implemented clear protections from discrimination in all federally funded health care programs. But, and not to get too political, Last election was a turning point for our country and our community in many ways. Since taking office, Donald Trump and Mike Pence have, campa- have governed the exact same way they campaigned, with bigotry and with bluster. Just a few weeks after taking office, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Betsy DeVos, and Jeff Sessions rescinded life-saving guidance promoting the protection of transgender students that the Obama administration had issued a year before. We've seen anti-equality extremists appointed to the federal bench and administration positions, people who've compared being gay to pedophilia, people who've called transgender youth part of Satan's plan. We've seen the granting of a sweeping license to discriminate order that allows for government workers, federal contractors, and even healthcare professionals to discriminate against LGBTQ people, women, and religious minorities. And of course, in one of the most shameful moves yet in a series of erratic tweets, although every single one of his tweets is erratic. The president attempted to reinstate a ban on transgender people serving openly in the military, attempting to reinstate discrimination in the country's largest employer. But what we've also seen over the last several years, whether it was in North Carolina, whether it's in response to this president's hateful agenda, It's that every single time anti-equality politicians come for transgender people, every single time they come for us, it creates a national dialogue that actually serves only to open hearts and change minds and in so doing, sows the seeds of the destruction of the politics of hate that they seek to implement. And that's what's happening right now. Our country is engaged in a conversation about who we are. One of the things we need more of in this country is compassion. And not just compassion for the person who's the same as you in every single way but one. It's one thing to feel compassion for a transgender person like me who's white, educated, upper middle class, transitioned at a relatively young age. It's another thing to feel compassion for a person whose pain and plight might be so incomprehensible that it almost becomes unrelatable. That, if there's anything I learned from Andy, is what true compassion is about. Compassion not just for that person who is the same as you in every single way but one, but compassion for the person who is different than you in every single way but one, our shared humanity. And when we tap into that compassion, when we call upon one another to meet not the darkest undercurrents in American society, but our better angels, we will be able to build a world where you can be trans, you can be gay, you can be black, you can be Muslim, you can be anything that this society says is mutually exclusive with dreaming big dreams. That You can be any or all of those things and still be seen, still be valued, and still be respected as the equal people that we all are. Right now, it's, it's easy to lose track of the progress we've made. It's easy to lose hope. And in many ways, writing this book allowed me to refind my hope after the election, because I was able to reflect on my experiences. I was able to understand that hope, it only makes sense in the face of hardship. And I thought about that lesson my brother taught me, that even in the darkest moments, even in the most troubling times, all of us, we are able to witness acts of amazing grace, And I think that's been the story of the last year. It's been the story of people marching and protesting, of diverse voices finally being heard, of people filling airports to protect Muslim immigrants, people marching in the streets for gender equality. I see it every single day in my job with HRC. When I was growing up, the thought of both living my truth and dreaming big dreams all at the same time seemed so incomprehensible that it didn't make sense. The words together almost wouldn't make sense. But today, across this country, there are young people who are insistent, consistent, and persistent in their assertions of their gender identity. And they are doing what once seemed impossible to me. They are both living their truth and dreaming big dreams all at the same time. I get to meet these young transgender kids across the country. They're sometimes seven, eight, nine years old. And I, I I see just how far we've come. I saw it in the young transgender kids I watched march into the Texas State Capitol with their heads held high to demand dignity and fairness, holding in one hand the knowledge of all of the hate that exists in this world, but holding in the other the knowledge that their identities are worth celebrating and that their lives matter. We see it in the young transgender girl named Lulu, who when I met her, She asked me a question that wouldn't have made sense to me when I was growing up. She asked me, what's my favorite part about being transgender? I see it, and I think about it every day, in this young transgender girl named Stella, who's now 13 years old. And when I met Stella, I asked her what she wants to be when she grows up. It's one of my favorite questions to ask young trans kids when I meet them. And Stella looked at me and she declared without any hesitation, proudly, that she will be the first transgender president. What once seemed impossible, that we could live that truth and dream big dreams, is now very real to kids like Stella. The mere fact that these kids exist today demonstrates how far we've come. And that's the story of the LGBTQ community from Stonewall to the steps of the Supreme Court. It's the story of every single battle for civil and human rights in our country's history, which is that time and time again, we have transformed impossibility into possibility into reality. And that's politics, that's advocacy at its best. Not the art of the possible, but the art of making the impossible possible. But of course, we have a long way to go, far too many Transgender people and LGBTQ people are still rejected by their families. Far too many transgender youth wake up in the morning fearful of bullying during the school day ahead. Far too many elected officials still seek to target the transgender community with legislation that tries to restrict our access to bathrooms. I think people don't fully understand why there's this conversation around bathrooms. And frankly, transgender people would much rather be talking about anything but where we go to pee. But the reason why this conversation is happening, the reasons why it's so important is that opponents of equality throughout every single battle for civil and human rights have tried to talk about bathrooms. They talked about bathrooms during the Civil Rights Act. They talked about bathrooms during the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment. Talked about bathrooms during the Americans with Disabilities push. They talked about bathrooms in the early days of the gay rights movement, and now they're talking about bathrooms with the trans rights movement. And they're doing it for two reasons. One is they understand that everyone feels a little bit vulnerable in restrooms. Everyone feels a little bit queasy around restrooms. And if you can talk to people about some change in a restroom, when you fill the ignorance that exists with fear-mongering and caricatures, bathrooms are fertile ground to get people to say, you know what, we need to halt this progress. There's just too much. But there's also a more insidious reason why they're going after us. They understand that if they can legislate discrimination in restrooms, if they can make it less safe for a transgender person to easily access a restroom consistent with who they are, then it becomes much more difficult to go to work. It becomes much more difficult to go to school. It becomes difficult to even leave your house for more than three hours. And make no mistake. as Absurd as this conversation seems around bathrooms, it is nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to legislate discrimination, to legislate transgender people out of public life. And so we need your voices. We need the voices of transgender people and the voices of allies speaking up against this hate. Because this is indeed a moment of choosing, not just for our country, but for each and every one of us. And we have been called to a righteous cause, It's not just our nation's children who are watching us. It's also posterity. The countless generations for whom this moment, this time right now is a chapter in their history books of tomorrow. And while every chapter may be influenced by politicians and presidents, we know that in the end they are written by each and every one of us. By the decisions each one of us make every single day to either be silent in the face of prejudice or persecution or to speak out, to fight back, and to bend the arc of the moral universe just a little bit more towards justice. Our job right now is to find hope in heartache, to find hope in hardship. Our job right now is to exercise those acts of amazing grace to fill light into the space that's so filled with darkness right now. But when we do, when we finally build a world where everyone can be seen and and affirmed and allowed to live their whole lives as their authentic selves, when our understanding of we the people finally includes all of us, a young transgender student or a young queer student will grow up and learn about the struggle for justice and equality in their history books and never have to know what this progress felt like to those of us who are LGBTQ because they will never know anything different. And that will be because of LGBTQ people who marched and fought for a better tomorrow. It'll be because of allies who stood up and spoke out. It will be because of all of us. So I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I want to thank you for coming and hopefully buying my book and learning a little bit more about what it means to be transgender and about my story. And I look forward to answering any questions you have. So thank you all very much for being here this evening. (laughs)